Welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya Crittenden, associate editor at The Tracking Board, and this week I am joined by only one of my fellow geeky millennials. Who is it? It's me. It's Hui Chen Bui. I'm a USA Today contributor and a pop culture journalist in D.C. Sadly, Wilby could not join us today because he is in Connecticut on a family vacation, returning to his home state. I hope he's having fun, though. I think he is. I think he is. He's uh, he's going through, he's taking a trip down memory lane. So, you know, that's one of his favorite things to do, I think. Yes. Yeah. He's having a good time. (laughs) So our episode this week is going to be talking about something that Ani and I particularly love, which are period pieces, specifically costume dramas. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but we are trying to make the definition of period pieces kind of... um, Movies that take place in a certain era up until the 1950s. We think that, like, if you go too much into anything past that, well, I guess up to the 1960s, but anything past that, like the 70s or 80s, there's a little bit too much into nostalgia territory slash, like, the reboot boom that we're going through right now. Yeah, that's not what we're discussing today. Yes, exactly. So I think that's a good definition for us to have. All right. Um, So we're just going to be talking about why we love period pieces, why their popularity is just is still so strong and prevailing today, and if we're seeing a different kind of period piece start to resurge in the uh, genre movie, um, specifically like sci-fi movies or superhero movies even. Uh, so Anya, um, let's start off with talking about why we love period pieces so much. Uh, Anya, why don't you tell me about why you love them? <laughs> Well, I think I think there are two main things that go into it. Um, as I mentioned in our Pokemon episode, I was a history major, so historical films have always been one of my favorite genres of film because I love history, and so seeing history on film, regardless of how accurate it always is, um, I just really enjoy it because it's something that I already love, and so seeing it on screen, like, unfold, um, is really exciting for me. Um, but I think the other thing is that they're almost similar to, like, fantasy films in a way for me because they kind of, I think, more than other genres of film, they're a really good form of escapism Mm -hmm. because, like, they're not about, like, current problems and they're not set in the modern day and so, like, you don't really recognize everything and so you can just kind of, like, get swept up in the setting of wherever the film is taking place, whether it's, like, ancient Greece or Victorian England or World War II, and you can just kind of get lost in that world that you don't, that you're not really familiar with. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of why. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that despite them being, like, set in, like, this almost fantasy world, there's still a lot of modern-day, like, parallels that we see, which is why they're so powerful and like the stories still are still being true today I think yeah yeah and I mean they're very I mean they are very romantic like most of the time period films are meant to be very romantic very sweeping and I'd be lying if I said I was not a sucker for that um I don't buy into the whole you know people are like I wish I lived in this time period. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, do you? Because, like, penicillin hadn't been invented yet. Indoor and, plumbing is a nice thing. You know? And, like, especially if you're, like, a woman or a person of color. Like, I don't think you want to live back then. So, like, it's not that I'm, like, romanticizing the past and saying, like, oh, it's so much better than it is now. Because it wasn't. Um, but, I, you know, I love learning about it. And 
it is kind of fun to get swept up in the whole like romantic idea of history that Hollywood has put forth sometimes while recognizing that it's not actually true. Yes, I agree with you. Um, I really enjoy period dramas for specifically that reason, like the romance. And I know a lot of them are actually very feminist in terms of like the books and the stories that we, that were being written back then. Like Jane Austen herself, um, her books were extremely progressive, um, yes. despite a lot of people seeing them as like chick flicks or like light reading. They have really strong heroines who yeah. like because like as you can tell by the popularities of the books and the movies today, they still are they still resonate with a lot of people today. So I think that because it comes from a different time, people shouldn't discount it. Um, I completely agree. Um, and, yeah, and I love the costumes. That's the thing. It's it's just so pretty. <laughs> I mean, and, like, I think the other thing is, like, like Jane Austen especially because it's very feminist and stuff, but, like, you know, sometimes it's really fun to watch, like, you know, a couple, like, fall in love in that kind of romantic historical way where it's, like... You know, like, they kiss once, and a lot of their sexual tension comes from, like, dancing. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, I'm just, like, I'm just, like, yes. I'm here for this. Exactly. So <laughs> and I know, some... I mean, like, you and I are kind of, like, we like those romantic films. We talked about it in our rom-com episode. Yeah, we're saps. We are. We are. I mean, it's... I remember the first time I ever saw the Keira Knightley, Pride and Prejudice... Which I love. I mean, the Colin Firth one is also great, but, mm-hmm. like, I really love the Kara Knightley version. But I remember the first time I ever saw it was a Saturday morning in high school, and it was raining outside. And I was, like, in bed. And I was like, this is it. This is the best. Yeah, I remember seeing that when I was young, too. I think I might have been in middle school, actually. When did it come out? It came out in 2005. 2005. So... I was actually in high school. I was it was my sophomore year of high school and we had Netflix back then, but this was the one where they delivered DVDs through your mail. Yep. So we were one of the early customers of Netflix and we got I that, that yeah, we got that DVD and I watched it and it was the first movie that actually started to make me feel, you know, that churning in your stomach when you get like yes. butterflies. Yes. That was the first movie that made me feel butterflies and I was like, What is this feeling? Do you remember like was there a particular moment in the movie that um, like really it was the dance, the first, the, their dance scene, the first dance scene. And I was just oh like, wow. <laughs> I know. And Whoa. I don't think that, and I know that like a lot of people, you know, like I said, discount period dramas because they are catered very much towards female audience. I don't think that it makes them any less intellectual or interesting or thought provoking stories because of that. Even though I like start to blush over the thought of Mr. Darcy, I still think that it's a really strong story in itself. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And, like, when you look at, like, Austin's other works, I think it's also um, very telling the fact that she writes a lot of, like, female relationships, too. Mm. Like, sisters or friends. And they're always, typically, at least your heroines, are always very supportive of each other. And so you have, like, um, Elizabeth and Jane and Pride and Prejudice, or you have, like, um, Emma and... Mrs. Woodhouse in Emma. Mm. And, you know, it's, I really like that, like, even back then, like, there was a, an emphasis on female relationships as well, alongside the romance. 
I agree. I think a lot of the modern stories are missing that, honestly, um, in attempts to make women stand out more in, like, the male world or, like, our current definition of the strong female character. They surround them by men, I guess, to, in a way, to um, almost lessen their femininity. Yeah. And I'm not a fan of that. I enjoy... I think that women are stronger for strong female relationships and that it shouldn't make them seem any weaker or anything. Yeah. I mean, like, I remember um, I introduced my roommate to the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice, and she Mm -hmm. commented afterwards that, like, with how many female characters were in it, she doesn't think that it passes the Bechdel test. And I'm not sure it does either, Mm because almost every conversation is about a man in some way. Um, But, I mean... When you think about it, like, marrying was their form of survival. It was. Like, Mrs. Bennet, as annoying as you might find her, is just trying to, like, make sure her daughters have a living. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I mean, despite the fact that Jane and Elizabeth are often talking about, like, Mr. Bingley or Mr. Darcy, they're still watching out for each other and supporting each other and wanting to see each other be happy. Mm-hmm. And I think... Regardless of the Bechdel test, I think it's still good female characters and oh yeah, good support. Yeah, they're all still definitely fleshed out. And the Bechdel test isn't shouldn't be shouldn't have to be anyways the um, main standard by which we measure strong female characters or strong female relationships. Yeah. Um. So Anya, can you tell me a couple of your favorite period <coughs> dramas? Of course. Um. I mean. Anything Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. I have talked about my love of her before, so it's no secret um, that I love her. Um, almost any adaptation of Warm Peace. Warm Peace is one of my favorite novels of all time. Um, and it's... I know, it's so... People <laughs> always, like react when I say that. They're like, really I haven't read it yet, so I can't really judge you, but it is a dense tome. <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, a lot of Russian literature is, but I also mm-hmm. love Russian literature. I mean, I was... Russian literature, to me, like, as dense as it may be, is very human. Mm-hmm. Like, the human relationships and the human characters and everything that they go through is so relatable. Like, you would think it wouldn't be because it's kind of old, classic, dense literature, but it really is. Um, both, like, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and, like, Chekhov's plays. Mm-hmm. Um, but War and Peace, especially, is my favorite. I've seen every adaptation of it except for the Anthony Hopkins version. Okay. Um, I've even seen, like, the eight-hour Russian version. Um, um, speaking of War and Peace, though, I feel like it's interesting that, you know, the reason that you really love period pieces and uh, costume dramas is, you know, the fantasy element, whereas Russian literature and War and Peace is very much not that. I feel like they're very tragic and tend to go for, like, a very realist sort of depiction of that time period. Yeah, I mean, they do. I mean, War and Peace is also based in history, because it's mm-hmm. about Napoleon's invasion of uh, Russia, so it's, like, half real, mm-hmm. but the characters are all fictionalized. Um, but, I mean, like, there's, like, the main romance in the book between Andre and Natasha is very, very romantic and very sweeping, as we've been talking about it, and, like, mm-hmm. they have, their first dance is just, like... Oh my god, every time, in any adaptation when I watch their first dance, I get, like, my heart just flutters. Um, I mean, the thing is, like, War and Peace, despite being tragic and having tragedy, is very hopeful. Mm. And, like, characters really learn to kind of have compassion and have forgiveness. And 
you know, at the end of the day. Like, it is, like, there's some tragic endings for certain characters, but, like, it is still, like, a happy ending yeah. at the end. So, yeah, I mean, it has its tragedy. I mean, at least War and Peace is not as tragic as other. I read um, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, which is one of my other favorite Russian novels, and mm-hmm. that one is far darker and way more tragic. So, just kind of depends on which Russian novel you're reading. Yeah, I feel like a lot of them tend to have at least some streaks of tragedy because they're probably all miserable up there in the cold Siberian winters. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they can be for sure. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that's definitely one of my absolute favorites. Mm. Um, I'm sure there are others. I'm just trying to rack my brain and it's hard because there are so many. So what's some of yours? Um, I really love the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. I think that was my kind of gateway drug to period dramas, definitely. Um, seeing that in, in high school and just kind of falling in love with the characters, the rich story, and like, again, it's been adapted so many times, but it still holds, um, it, even in modern adaptations and in the various miniseries that it has, it's been told in. Um, I, I, I have a kind of... Um, a more nihilist streak, I guess, than Anya does in terms of my preferences for period pieces, because other than Pride and Prejudice, I'm not as much a fan of Jane Austen. I really like kind of the humor and the satire she does in Emma, and most recently, Love and Friendship, which I loved, which was actually an adaptation of her short story, I think, um, Lady Susan. Mm -hmm. Um, But I am a big fan of uh, the gothic romance, specifically Jane Eyre, which is I think, I will say it is my favorite book of all time. I read it when I was first in sixth grade, and I fell in love with it. Um, It's just, it's kind of meant to be a subversion, I guess, of, like, the typical um, Edwardian romance. Although, I think it takes place, is it written before or after? Sometimes my, my historical periods get a little mixed up. But it's very much like it, a very introverted kind of uh, how do I describe it dark and okay. I have like a lot of thoughts actually on gothic romances but for some reason I can't bring them all together now but um, they often have a Byronic hero and a dark twist and they often are supposed to show some sort of um, more, less, more or less ignored aspect of society um, and it's very in line with like Victorian um, values, I guess. Um, and hiding. Are you a fan people. of Wuthering Heights? You know, actually, when I first read it, I was not a fan because I hated both the main characters. I mean, you're kind of supposed to. Yeah, and I couldn't bring myself to. I mean, I finished it, and like, it's a really tragic story. And in 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 essence, it is like the essential gothic romance because it does bring out all those qualities of just like the hidden aspects of society that no one likes to talk about but I just found it so difficult to like any of the characters in it that I disliked it the entire time I might like it more now because I read it when I was really young I read it shortly after Jane Eyre I think like in middle school Um, and Jane Eyre I liked a lot more because I did really sympathize with the main character and I I just I loved her every conversation she had with um, Mr. Rochester I know Mr. Rochester is like the most problematic most terrible ironic (laughs) hero ever but I just, I love him. He's so I dynamic mean, and he's so You do you, girl. I know. I, it's like, and it's, I found that it's um, a prevailing thing with me. I tend to like very 
Mr. Rochester type characters. I like my Bionic heroes. They're all angsty and broody, and they're all just like assholes, but I love them. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so funny. I love that you bring up like gothic, like how you like the Bionic heroes and the gothic romances, and I with Austin. Mm-hmm. I just looked up a couple more to like name drop a couple more, and mm-hmm. mine are all like the like the funnier and the more hopeful like i really love like oscar wilde oh, oscar adaptations Wilders. like mm-hmm. importance of being earnest mm-hmm. um and i also really love um bell if I you saw that i haven't seen that yet i've been meaning it's, to it's excellent it's mm-hmm. so wonderful um and actually one of my favorite period films and i will defend it till the day i die is shakespeare in love <laughs> and I will also defend its Oscar because I think it deserved Best Picture that year. I think people unfairly knock down this film because I don't think they realize how smart it is. Like, Shakespeare in Love is meant to be a satire. It, it is a it's comedy. And it's so smart. Yeah. And I it's think... meant to, like, satirize, like, satirize yeah. Shakespeare. And it's so smart and so funny and... I love all the performances. I find them very endearing, and I just love that film, and so I will defend it forever. I think the reason that people have so much disdain for it is that it's, because it's an Oscar movie, people expect it to be a serious sort of biopic when it is, in reality, a comedy. It's a satire. Um, Much in the vein of Austin's own works, people kind of think it's going to be a straight chick flick, but it's actually somewhat satirical. Um, Yeah. So, I... I agree with you to that extent, but I don't know if I would say it deserved that Best Picture win. I will. I will. I think it deserves it over Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go there. I mean, I enjoyed Shakespeare in Love. I thought it was fun and silly, but not really any more than that. Uh, But I I think that's why I find it a lot smarter. Yeah, I think it's so brilliant with what it is trying to do and what it accomplishes, and I think that's why I love it so much. See, I wonder if, like, even the people in the movie realize that, though, because I can kind of see a lot of the characters going for more of a campy, um, campy comedy than, like, a satire, because I, I think especially, like, Ben Affleck's character was very much, like, very cartoonish, and I don't know if it was, like, completely, um consistent with all the acting and all the storylines, so... Maybe, although I think... Regardless of actors and characters, I think they might not have realized, but, like, Tom Stoppard wrote the screenplay, and mm-hmm. he's also the one who wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Mm, that one's hilarious. And so I think that he knew what he was doing and how smart he was making this film. And so I think, like, that's why I love it so much, is that, like, I think it was very intentionally meant to be smart and satirical, and I just don't think enough people get that and I just love that film a lot I feel the same way about Marie Antoinette I haven't seen that either but I remember staying away from it see I love that film yeah I think it's brilliant I think Sofia Coppola does a brilliant job with it I think it's so feminist Mm -hmm. and I think it's wonderful I think the anachronisms are great Mm -hmm. I think like I I just love and respect that film so much and all the bold choices that she makes and I think I think there comes I think, like you've been saying, people view them as, like, chiclet films, Mm. and so they kind of dismiss them unfairly without realizing that, like, they're actually doing something interesting, Mm. and I feel that way both about Marie Antoinette and Shakespeare in Love. 
and I love both of them. Yeah, my reason for staying away from Marie Antoinette is that I personally am not a fan of anachronisms in historical films. Um, it's the reason why it took me a long time to like get around to liking uh, Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby, which is actually a better film every time I see it, but I just could not really get into it the first time. Um, yeah. Because of the anachronisms. And another reason why, like, A Knight's Tale, I just, I think it's it's very silly, and I can't... But it, that film is so great! It, I, I just, anachronisms, for me, take me out of the film, and I think that's the one thing that movies shouldn't do, even if they are absurd comedies. So, I personally just, like, cannot stand anachronisms. And unless, like... I don't know if, like, there's a chance where I will, like, make an exception. Because, like, it's just a personal thing for me. I'm not a fan of Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it kind of depends. Like, obviously in a film like Atonement, which is a great period film, mm-hmm. also James McAvoy, yeah. um, if there were, like, anachronism than that, I'd be like, yeah. what is happening? This is not okay. This is not right. I'm thrown out. But, like, in films like Marantwana and A Knight's Tale, where, like, that is their intention, like, that's... Mm-hmm that's the style of film they're going for, I'm more, I'm more okay with it because, like, that's their kind of creative intent. Yeah, like, I can I can see the purpose in absurd comedies and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But for me, I like to... I just... I, I personally don't like it. I think I, I just like to draw a line, I guess. Um, no, that's fair. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> We're very much focused on, I, um, I've realized, English Mm. period film. I mean, I think that's because they sort of dominate period film in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but are there any other, like, outside of England? Well, there's tons of historical dramas from China and Japan. Um, I've only seen, I can't say I've seen all of them. I am a huge fan of, like, House of Flying Daggers, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, which are also very fantastical. I think, actually, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a fantasy movie. Um, and then you also have Memoirs of a Geisha, which was kind of, well, it was an American movie with Chinese actors playing Japanese, Chinese character, Japanese characters, sorry. So I don't completely see it as like extremely genuine, but it's actually a good film. Um, but yeah, those movies are excellent. I would definitely recommend, um, Hero, Crashing Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and House of Flying Daggers, which are all in the somewhat similar vein of like very surreal, fantastical Chinese historical films mm-hmm. that are just gorgeous. Like, they have the most beautiful cinematography. Um, battle scene from Hero, for example, one of the final scenes, is amazing. It's actually... I, I, gotta, I gotta talk about Hero a little bit because I right. love it, and it's like... Right. The plot itself is not that great. It's kind of... Um, you should tell me the plot, because I don't know the film. The okay. All right. I haven't seen it in a while, so I can't exactly tell you. But I know it's about um, this man who uh, I think goes nameless in the film. He's the, the titular hero who tells this emperor about how he defeated these two assassins, I think, who were meant to take the life of the emperor. Um, this is just, like, okay. based on my memory, so I can't say it's completely accurate. <laughs> but um, he... Every time he tells a story, it goes into, like, the full detail of, like, his story, and it tells, like, what actually happened from his point of view. But every time he tells a story, it's different. And um, it's... The story in the flashback is told, like, from a different, like, both perspective and also color scheme. So Mm -hmm. the first time, it's, like, all in blue, and it's, like, 
the whole, everyone is wearing blue and it's like really gorgeous and like this really blue color scheme. And um, whenever he tells the story, he comes a little bit closer to the emperor because he supposedly like saved this emperor's life. Um, and he tells the story three times and it's told differently a little bit each time and with the different color scheme. I think it's like blue, red, and yellow. And That's really uh, interesting. it's really gorgeous. Like the plot itself is kind of thin and it like at the end it turns out that he didn't kill these assassins, but he was working with them. I guess spoilers, but not really much. Um, and then like the last final battle scene kind of combines all these three really bright, just like striking colors into a final scene that is really has a really ambiguous ending. Um, it's more of a of a practice, like the movie is more of just like a way of practicing like this really beautiful cinematography more than telling an actual story. But um, I really loved it, and it really just like struck me ever since I've seen it. I'm pretty sure this is Hero. Yeah, this is Hero. Hey, that's awesome. Are you, um, I'm curious also, are you a fan of Kurosawa? I, I want, I feel like I would. I actually haven't seen any Kurosawa movies, and I know a lot of my favorite movies are influenced by him, actually. Yeah, I've seen a few of his films, and I've really liked all of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would recommend uh, his Hamlet, his take on Hamlet, Throne of Blood, is really good. Mm, okay. Yeah, I definitely want to see Seven Ronin. I think that's the word. Uh, is it Seven Ronin? Seven, Seven Samurai? Seven Samurai. That's what it is. I don't know why I said Ronin. Uh, but yeah, Seven Samurai. Um, and then that's one I definitely want to see. But yeah. Uh, um, no, he's really great. Mm-hmm. He's really great. I also think... Um, period films, or, like, historical times, really lend themselves to miniseries. Mm-hmm. I think John Adams and Band of Brothers, both on HBO, um, are two of my favorite series. I think they're brilliant, and I love how they can really get into kind of the daily life mm-hmm. in these historical settings. No, I agree. I think a lot of historical stories and period pieces are very much like in the details and not so much about the mood and atmosphere that some other films may be about, but they're about like specific events or instances. Um, it's why Mad Men, for example, was so popular and so prevalent because it told like this very original story, but was still like very close to detail for like a lot of the historical events that happened. Um, and I, yeah, I agree with you, like all those HBO series, although I actually haven't seen a lot of them. Um, I don't really have the patience for a historical series, I think. Um, Interesting. Okay. Okay. I actually haven't seen a lot. I think, what was the last historical, like, series I watched? I actually watched a little bit of War and Peace, the HBO... uh, Oh, no, the, um, the A&E one, I think. The Lily James one. Right, right. Mm A&E. Yeah, with Lily James. I loved that adaptation, actually. Yeah, I remember you live-tweeted it, and you were just like, you're so... You're so happy that I was I was happy. very emotional and very happy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, ironically, despite my love for period pieces and, like, the books that, they, that they're based on, I tend to not really watch a lot of their TV series. I'm not really sure the reason. I guess, like, I have a short attention span or something. Oh, um, that's fair. Mm-hmm. With, like, the binge culture, it's kind of... We've almost been trained that way. I know, like, it's funny, I'll, like, see a movie, and I'll be like, oh, man, it's, like, over two and a half hours, mm-hmm. and I'm man, and I'm like, all right, self, like, what? Who are you? I know, and it's like, oh, this this is five episodes, but then you watch, and you can watch that more than watch the two and a half hour movie, so. It's very strange, like, 
how we've been conditioned. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think um, going into our next topic with period films, so you mentioned um, that some people were upset that you think some people were upset Shakespeare in Love won because it was funny. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, the one they think should have won is another period piece, uh, Saving Private Ryan, mm-hmm. which was far more serious. Mm-hmm. And so. And then we wanted to talk about period films and their relationship to the Oscars and why period films are often considered Oscar baby um, and maybe why it has to be a serious period film. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is kind of their connection and their relationship? Well, I think it's the fact that these stories have stayed so strong 50, 100 years later after they've been written. And... Um, that's why there have been so many adaptations of them because they're a safe bet for movie studios. They know that they're successful because these stories have been successful for hundreds of years now. Um, Hence, a lot of them being adapted from these more serious, historical, sweeping epics and kind of just getting associated with the Oscar bait stereotype, I guess. Um, You see a lot of just really either tragic or or just kind of inspiring stories about historical figures that you never knew, and because of that, they tend to get associated with Oscar films. If that makes sense? No, it does. And if you Mm -hmm. look, it's interesting, if you look at, like, the past, like, the 2010s, the Mm -hmm. teens, if you look at all the films that have won Best Picture, a majority of them are period pieces in some way. So in 2010, it was The King's Speech. Mm -hmm. In 2011, it was The Artist, which... Arguably also won together with the silent black and white film. Um, but it was a period film. Yes. Um, in 2012, it was Argo, which doesn't fit our definition mm-hmm. of period film. But it was a real-life story that took place yeah, in biopic, the Yeah, essentially, yeah. Um, in 2013, it was 12 Years a Slave, which is mm-hmm. a brilliant film, but almost the definition of what we've been saying is, like, Oscar Beatty serious. Mm-hmm. Um, 2014 doesn't... It's Birdman, so it doesn't really count. 2015 mm-hmm. was Spotlight, mm-hmm. which, again, not our definition of period film, but something that took place in the past. Mm-hmm. And that is a real-life story that is serious and important mm-hmm. in some way. And, like, you know, people wanted Selma to win when Birdman won, which is another important... Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, like, that whole idea of the important movie has definitely kind of driven the the stereotype of the Oscar bait film being a period piece. Um, and it, it has angered me at some point, like, that it has been, become so easy for sometimes just mediocre period dramas to get Oscar, to get nominated for an Oscar. Um, I remember being really upset the year, I think it was last year, that Theory of Everything and Imitation Game got nominated because I thought Imitation Game was not great. I thought it was just very average. And mm-hmm. it got nominated for an Oscar, and I felt like a lot of other films could have taken that slot. And I think it just got nominated because of a strong central performance. The fact that it was a period piece and that it was about a real-life figure. And so did not like Theory of Everything? I liked Theory of Everything, but I thought it was also oh. a little bit by the numbers. But for me, I feel like there's always one designated slot, at least, in the Oscar-nominating ballot for at least one period piece. And I'd prefer just there be one and not, like, 
every other slot be taken by another period piece just because it has all it checks off all the factors you know what I mean I think yeah I think we talked about this earlier this week but like a historical film can be excellent and deserving of best picture and be an incredible film but just by being a historical film doesn't mean that you are yeah it does not mean that it's a great story or a great film just because it has all those aspects of an Oscar film yeah um, so yeah, it, it has frustrated me that that is the Oscar-based stereotype, because it's an easy story, honestly. You don't really mm-hmm. have to do much, except for just, like, dramatize a couple of scenes, but you basically stick to the main story, and it already happens, so there isn't much creative license that a lot of filmmakers take, or that they want to take, because they want, you know, the Oscar nod. Um, and I think a lot of actors see it as an easy way to get an Oscar nod as well. Yeah, and I think that's partially why I prefer uh, that Shakespeare in Love one. Mm. No, that I can. It was a more creative. (laughs) See, I turned it against you. Yeah, used your own argument. You did, and now I'm like in a rut. I do really love Saving Private Ryan, though. I don't know if it completely adheres to like all the things I hate about Oscar bait movies. Fair, no fair. Mm -hmm. But I think that's why Shakespeare in Love is a bit more creative and bold. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I mean, Saving Private Ryan is brilliant, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a great film. Um, I don't think that one is necessarily better than the other. Mm-hmm. I just think that Shakespeare and Love does really interesting things. Yeah. Um, yeah, do you have any thoughts about why this has become, like, the period piece and the Oscar bait movie have become so intertwined? I mean, I think anything... I mean, so you have, like, period pieces mm-hmm. um, that are based on, like, works of fiction and therefore aren't about historical things. And I think that's kind of different, because, I mean, you rarely see, like, a Jane Austen film win Best Picture. Like, Emma Thompson won Best Screenplay for some sensibility, but, like, I think it's more historical period films. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because everyone's, like, based on a true story. Like, this really happened, and people are always, like, amazed by that. We like to celebrate our accomplishments in humanity, which makes sense. But either celebrating our accomplishments or like playing into our guilt and yeah. trying to like atone for that. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, you know, like sometimes I mean, Twelve Years a Slave. I think it's a brilliant film. Oh my god, it is amazing, and Chiwetel yeah. Ejiofor's acting in that is phenomenal. Like, so like I, I do not. I'm really. I was happy at one. I was rooting for it oh, that year. So I did not the budget. Um, but I think you can fall into some traps mm-hmm. um, occasionally. Um, but then there are films that do bolder things with these kind of constraints. Like, I'm really looking forward to Birth of a Nation mm. this year. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm excited for that. Um, yeah. God, every time I watch the trailer, actually, I get chills. Same. It's... So I think there are ways to kind of be bolder with these films. I think, mm. first off, like, having people whose history this is actually kind of take the narrative back, mm-hmm. hence Birth of a Nation and, like, why they titled the film Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. I think is really powerful. Oh, definitely um, is. But then you have more films that are a little bit more... By the numbers. Yeah, and I think don't, don't try and do anything bold. Don't try and, like, comment on the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's kind of sometimes the problem with, um, like, 
Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah. It was it was another movie that was anchored by great central performance, but the movie itself, yeah, it's just and had some problems, and yeah, and so like I think those are the kind of films where you run into more issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do think though that there are some um, movies that you think are going to be some a generic biopic but actually elevate, are elevated by the director's choices or by an interesting um, creative decision. Um, for example, Selma by Ava DuVernay. I think it, personally, it is elevated from being a generic biopic just by virtue of her skill as a director. Yes. And it is, it is a great film, and it is, it is so chilling. Um, I feel like, I, like one of the reasons I like it, it's very tight. Mm-hmm. It's very tight. Like, yeah, and that, like you said, speaks to her skill as a filmmaker. Yeah, I think, like, every scene is very impactful. Like, the opening scene itself is just, like, it's still, I can still remember it today. Like, it stuck with me. So, I think that there is a way of doing a historical film and kind of going beyond what is expected of it, despite <laughs> being, you know, what, checking off every mark for what a yeah. Oscar bait film is. I think what you were saying is now with like Selma being kind of a very straightforward historical film, but like mm-hmm. being so good because of Ava DuVernay, mm-hmm. that is why, I mean, that's why I love Spotlight so much. It's also why I really love Brooklyn, which is based on a book, but in a historical, in a period setting. But like that film is very straightforward, very kind of simple, but it's so skillfully told. Like, everything in Brooklyn is perfect. Like, the script, the directing, the editing, the pace. Like, it's so tight. And it's, like, a perfect film, and you can't find any holes with it. And, like, that's why I think no matter how simple it may be, it is worthy of its Best Picture nomination. Because, like, a film doesn't have to be flashy to be Best Picture. Because, like, why Like why do you have to, like do something really flashy when you're doing everything like so perfectly like I think that enough is Mm -hmm. worthy which is then when you get to The Revenant which is not a good film and just because you're doing something flashy doesn't by virtue make you a good film and again a period film yeah Uh, I have such problems with The Revenant although I will say it is a very well made movie and the cinematography is one of the best cinematography like well shot films I've seen last year but I just have so many problems with the story that it tells and the way that it tells it. So, yes. Yeah. And again, read yeah, just unnecessary mm-hmm. and it's like bombastic. And that's the problem. That's when you have the problems with period films and being mm-hmm. Oscar baby. And yep. So, um, so essentially, I think what we're saying is that I period dramas, while they may be often by the numbers, and while they've been remade and told so many times that they can seem a little bit generic, they can still be elevated by a great director or a great script or a great cinematographer if the director or crew behind it wants to do that, have the ability or the (coughs) ambition to do so, I think. So, while while you may be bored by them, they can still surprise you. Completely agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about 
if we're seeing a little change in the period piece and how they're being used, um, I think that there is a somewhat a somewhat a sort of trend um, in seeing genre movies take on the period piece. So we've seen um, Captain America, first of all, take place in World War II. Uh, next year and this year, we're going to be seeing Fantastic Beasts take place in the 1920s. We're going to see Wonder Woman in during World War One. Um, I may be missing others, but I think do you do you think that there is a trend here? Do you think that this may be a new resurgence for the period film? Um, it's interesting. I don't I don't necessarily know if it's a new trend or if it's just what the source material dictates, mm-hmm. like Captain America in the comics, like, he's a World War II hero. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't just not set it in World War II. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's necessarily, like, a trend. And, like, um, Fantastic Beasts. Like, J.K. Rowling had already dictated when Newt's Commander was born. So it's less that they were like, oh, I think the 1920s... Well, I mean, maybe they did think, oh, the 1920s will be interesting, but, like, she had already decided in her source material, in her world, mm-hmm. when he was alive. And Wonder Woman may be different because you can kind of put her anywhere. Um, I think World War One is a really interesting choice because it's not World War Two. <laughs> um, definitely a period we've seen plenty of. Yeah, so like I, it's interesting because like the the ones we're talking about are I don't necessarily know if they just chose like they didn't choose those time periods because they thought they'd be interesting. It's because the source material had already chosen that for them. Well, I agree with that on Captain America, at least, but I don't know if that's necessarily the case for Fantastic Beasts and Wonder Woman. I think that Fantastic Beasts and Wonder Woman are tied specifically, like, they can be tied to those eras, but I think that there was a a choice in making them set in a different time period. And, like, in terms of making, like, another Harry Potter film. Sorry? Yeah, Wonder Woman, I definitely agree that was, like, they chose World War Mm One, which is interesting. Um, and Fantastic Beasts, they probably did too. I mean, I, well, I mean, I guess they had to choose to tell Newt's story. Yeah, like, like that was my thinking is that they wanted to make another Harry Potter film, but they didn't know necessarily what they wanted to do. So then they yeah. kind of just were like, I feel like there was a sort of process in making it a period film in yeah. like the final product. I mean, um, and I actually I do think that it's interesting. Uh, that we're seeing this different type of superhero slash fantasy story and that they're set in the period, like, in a certain period. Um, mm-hmm. Barring, like, Captain America, because that's part of his past, and a part of his origin, I'm sorry. Um, I do think I that... I just wonder if there's a, there are more films to kind of support mm-hmm. the idea that this is a trend. Yeah, I wonder if it is. Like, it's based on my observation, basically, of, like, Fantastic Beasts and Wonder Woman coming out so soon and having this very distinct period bent. Um, but, yeah, I don't know if it will be a trend, but I think it will be an interesting way of both reinvigorating the superhero genre and the period piece genre. Um, I don't know if it would, but I think it's a good combination because, like, with superhero genres, we've talked about before that they, superhero films anyways, they kind of play around with the genres and do whatever they want, but, like, in a superhero bent. And I think that, like, I feel like their next genre is just, like, period piece. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to think if there are any other films that kind of fit this. Hmm. 
notion um and that way we can kind of explore it more um because i don't necessarily know if this is if two films support a trend or if they're gonna do anything because like you know you have like wonder woman coming out but like wonder woman is a historical figure like mm-hmm. she stems from ancient greece yeah she's seen all these times so like i don't think we're gonna see any other dc films set in period settings well Jonah and Hex- so i <laughs> but I think well, he is tied to that too yeah so like i don't know if we're necessarily seeing filmmakers place characters in historical settings in, like, genre films, or if they're just kind of, like, going with the source material and character history. So I don't know if it's necessarily, like, a trend mm-hmm. that we're seeing by filmmakers. So TBD. For, or TBA, yeah. rather. But it's something that I'm, I want to follow, because it's yeah. interesting. And I wouldn't mind it, because I do love uh, period films. Yeah, I love period films, and I love superhero movies, so I feel like it would be a good combination. There's also the idea of putting genre into the period setting, like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which I will also defend because that is a really fun film, and I don't care what anyone else says. That's true. That is also a new um, popular, I guess, a trend as well. Uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which followed Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Vampire Hunter, which is by the same author. Yes. Um, Those are more like satirical as well. And I mean, Pride of Rage and Zombies, like, no, it's not, like, a great film, but, like, <laughs> it does what it sets out to do. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why I love it so much, is that, like, if you go in expecting it to be, like, some great Oscar-worthy film, like, what are you doing? Like, this is meant to be a really ridiculous film. Like, it's Jane Austen with zombies. Like, it's meant to be ridiculous. And if you can kind of, like, suspend disbelief or whatever and just enjoy yourself, it's really fun. Yeah, like, that's the kind of anachronistic thing that I can buy because it's just beyond absurd. Yeah. So those are the kind of, those are probably, like, the kind of exclusive historical anachronisms that I can be like, okay, I'll dig it. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So is there another one? I think there was, like, Sense of Sensibility in Sea Monsters, right? Yeah, that was done by a different author, and it never got a movie. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any other ones where they just kind of put zombies or vampires. I mean, like, obviously a lot of, like, vampire films can be historical. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, that's Because true. their mythology goes way back. Same with, like, werewolves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of lends itself, like, the history plus the mythology. That's true. Works well together. That's very true. That's, I guess, a, a built-in kind of subversion of the period piece as well. Um, yeah. I was wondering, is there any sort of metaphor for the zombies in Pride and Prejudice? Or for the vampires in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter? Um, I mean, in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, it's basically the Black Plague. Okay. Like, and I think what's really interesting to me about Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is that, like, it still very much um, has a commentary on, like, the classism mm-hmm. of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Because, like, when the zombie breakout happens... Um, a lot of people in England either train in Japan or China um, to learn, like, the art of war and everything, mm-hmm. and Japan is considered where wealthier people go to train, and China, um, so it's, like, it, 
It's a weird. So this is like a whole backstory to the actual um, fighting of zombies. Interesting. It's an interesting way that they kind of explain the classism still in a setting like this. Huh. Like they're all fighting for their lives, and yet there is still a a hierarchy. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, like they're the Black Plague, mm-hmm. um, and I think I, I believe they imply that like it started because of the Black Plague. Mm. And it has become this sort of destruction of society. Um, I can't remember Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter because um, I did see that movie and it was terrible. <laughs> Zombies, it's just fun, but that movie I think tried to be too serious. What's and the point? I know, and it just was terrible. Like Dominic Cooper was in that movie. He played a vampire. He was like Lincoln's friend who was a vampire. Uh... Um, yeah, it was yeah. That one wasn't very good. That's a shame, because vampires are so rich in metaphor and historical lore, and then they just go and ruin it. I feel like they could have done a lot with vampires, too. I'm a huge vampire fan, if you guys didn't know by how many times (laughs) I mentioned Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes, we got another Buffy reference. (laughs) All right. Hey. Score. (laughs) But yeah, vampires are definitely, like, I think a big... I mean, and then, like, I mean, yeah, in all these historical settings, it's interesting because that's why, like, Universal, you know how they're doing their new monster universe, like, connected universe? Yeah, I forgot that's happening. They're, like, doing their own, like, MCU, but Universal Monsters. And from what, if I remember reading this correctly, they're bringing the mummy into the modern day. I don't know how I feel about that. They're currently filming The Mummy with Tom Cruise and Sophia Patella, and I'm pretty sure it's set in the modern day. Um, I don't think I like that. I'm also a little biased because I think the um, Rachel Wise Brendan Fraser mummy is perfect, oh and my I, God. I love it. that. Is brilliant in that terms of like me. fantastical like history history pieces. The mummy is amazing. It is it's like hot. the peak action comedy drama movie. Ah, I love the mummy. So that's why I'm a little biased. I'm like. Oh, but, like, guys, the mummy already exists, and it's perfect. Um, well, like, they've kind of ruined the series anyways because of their blatant spin-offs and rip-offs. Like, yeah. the Scorpion King and everything like that, so. But yeah. The first, but, first two. Amazing. But, yeah, it's interesting how we talk about how, like, mythology works hand-in-hand with period films, and Universal mm. is specifically bringing their monster universe into modern day. I don't like that. I really think that these mytholog- mythological creatures and monsters are very tied into the historical periods from which they come. Um, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm not a fan of that. Like, bringing the mummy into modern day, I don't know. It, it takes away any sort of meaning and symbolism behind the mummy and just makes him a monster, like a faceless monster. They're probably just trying to, like, do something new and different. It's probably their intention, but... I, I mean, it's not like... It's not like like mythological creatures can't work in modern day like I mean you love Buffy Mm. I think that at least the first several seasons of True Blood was really great Mm -hmm. Um, True Blood went like bonkers by the end so like let's not go there but like the first couple seasons of True Blood I think were really great and I like how they I like the vampire mythology in True Blood Mm -hmm. with like a king and queen vampire and Mm -hmm. like real politics that was my favorite part of True Blood with all the vampire politics. So, like, you can bring creatures into the modern day in an interesting way. Well, I think vampires work 
better well, than like yeah work better than other monsters because they have this sort of uncanny valley they're yeah they're they have like a human face and that their whole the whole metaphor and symbolism behind them is this kind of hypersexualized um, mm-hmm. fear of I don't know the dark monster behind her, yeah. the, the darkness in every human basically so yeah. I think the, the vampires work very well for the modern day because of that because like they have that kind of mythology that works well in sort of human society but other ones are very tied into their historical roots yeah so I'm not sure like the mummies especially yeah well sometimes no, I... they work well with like excavation type of films like like the mummy for example but I don't know yeah. Yeah, because it's interesting, because, like, The Mummy, obviously, is a period film. It takes place in, what, 19... I can't remember. It takes place in, the tw- in like, early 20th century. Yes. But, obviously, The Mummy comes from ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. So, he has been sort of updated, but, like, it's still a but, period yeah. film. And like, it has, like, a lot of interesting things to say about, like, colonialism and imperialism yeah. and all that stuff. So, that... You won't really bring have that in modern-day movie. Like, modern, modern-day. So... Yeah. I love how now we've turned into just, like, <laughs> like monster movies. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's basically what this podcast has turned into. We I'm, could do I'm, another episode on that event, uh, eventually, I think. That would actually be a really great episode. That would be fun. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Did you watch Being Human? I. That's the one with um, the J.J. Abrams show, right? No, that's Almost yeah. Human. Yeah, Being Human. Well, there was a U.K. version and a U.S. version. The U.K. version I loved, but it was, like, about the ghost and the vampire and the werewolf who live together. Oh, I'm aware of the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know of it. I really love it. Um, mm. I thought it was super great. But that's another interesting way they bring, like, those kind of monsters. Okay. Monsters, quote-unquote. Like, they're not <laughs> monsters. Monsters are more interesting when they reflect a different aspect of humanity and are not just some faceless monster. Even zombies <laughs> themselves are some sort of symbol for our fear of nuclear apocalypse. So, this sounds like something you've rehearsed. I've I've thought about this a lot. <laughs> um, so, the moral stay of the story tuned for our monster episode, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we will have to put that down on the list. I think so. Yeah. So I think the moral of the story is that we love period films, mm-hmm. and we love when they do interesting things, and we love when they're well made, and we like how they can sweep us up into different worlds, whether it's historical monster movies or romance films mm-hmm. or whichever. Yeah. They are a form of escapism in which we love to look at the beautiful costumes and see a different aspect of society that we may have not lived through. <laughs> Definitely have not lived through. <laughs> <laughs> are you, there's something about me you're not something about you that you're not telling uh, me? Or I won't say anything. <laughs> secretly immortal? <laughs> Anyways, very <laughs> young age. Are you a vampire? I won't say anything. <laughs> all right, all right. I think that wraps up our episode <laughs> on <again. laughs> historical period pieces. Um, if you guys have any thoughts about period dramas or about um, costume dramas, historical historical movies, biopics, let us know. But let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. All right, should I go first? I, I haven't done one in a while, so I'm kind of eager okay, to go for it, Anya. Uh, what is your really like for this week? I really like Flight of the Concords. 
So the New Zealand duo band of uh, Jermaine Clement and Brett McKenzie, uh, they had their HBO show way back when, like when I was in high school. Um, and they're a hilarious, like, comedy band. Um, and they haven't been together for a little while, and they did a North America reunion tour this year, which they are still currently doing. I think they're at the end of it. Um, but I saw them this week here in Los Angeles, and they were hilarious. It was just a great show. They, you know, they, they talk a lot between their songs, but they're also, like, comedians and actors. They've both been in films. Um, Brett McKenzie was actually in Austin Land, speaking of period films and oh. stuff. Um, which is a great, absurd movie, and I love it. Um, but no, it, they were really funny, and I've loved them since high school. I've loved their HBO show. I think their music is both smart and wickedly funny. Um, they're both also very talented, um, and I never thought I'd get the chance to see them, because, you know, they kind of haven't been together. They kind of took off and did their own separate things after a while. Um, so when they announced this reunion tour, I knew I had to see them, and they definitely lived up to all the hype. And I just really love Flight of the Concords. They're they're back, and they're great. So I've never actually seen Flight of the Concords, and I know very little about it. Uh, can you <laughs> tell me a little bit about? I know it's a show, but they're also a band. Can you? So yeah, so I mean, Flight of the Concords is the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, sing of Brett and Jermaine. Um, and so they make music, and their music is always very funny um, and kind of absurd and hilarious. Um, like, you know, they have a song um, about the most beautiful girl in the room. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because they're like, it's like, you're the most beautiful girl, and you're said, like, in the whole world, but they're like, in the whole room. And they're like, you could be a part time model or <laughs> like an air hostess in the 60s. So it's like, it's really funny because, like, they're, you know, playing off the, like, you're the most beautiful girl in the world, and you're everything, and you're a goddess, and they're like, you're a part-time model. <laughs> and so, like, they're really funny um, with their music. Um, the show on HBO was basically, uh, the concept was they moved to New York, and they were trying to make it as a band, like, in the States. Um, and Reese Darby plays their band manager, uh, Murray, mm-hmm. Reese Darby's hilarious he was in what we do in the shadows he played the werewolf yes um and yeah yeah and Kristen Schaal um was in the show she played Mel and she was like their biggest fan and like their only fan (laughs) and she was like obsessed with them and they both actually made surprise appearances at the concert wow which was great and really exciting um and so the show is just them in New York trying to like make it and it's just their absurd daily life in New York. Um, it's very silly. It's very... Um, actually, Taika Waititi directed a couple episodes from the series. So, mm-hmm. like, if you like what we do in the shadows, and if you like that kind of Kiwi humor, um, that's very much what the entirety of uh, Flight of the Concords is. There's an episode that Aziz Ansari's in. Oh. And, yeah, and he... <laughs> He doesn't like Brett and Jermaine because he thinks they're Australian. <laughs> and, like they're actually from New Zealand. Yeah, and so once they tell him that, he's like, oh, like, okay, cool, you guys are so awesome. And, like, the episode ends with them walking walking back and forth in front of the Australian uh, embassy, like, flipping them off. <laughs> it's so funny. It's just, it's that very kind of, like, 
um, absurd Kiwi humor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what the show is about, just them trying to, like, make it as a band um, in the States. Um, so it's really, they're, it's really funny. And I love them. And their music is, like, genuinely good and fun to listen to as well. All right. I'll just, like, look at a couple of their songs. I think I will. I'm Taiko, like, I can't say his name. Taiko Waikiki. Waikiki is also going to be directing the new Thor, Thor Ragnarok. So I'm hoping to see some of that kind of absurd, dry humor in Thor, of all places. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you heard about the sword that he revealed at Comic-Con, right? Yeah, the I didn't see it. They haven't released it it's yet, but I heard online. about it. Yeah, it's not online. Yeah. yeah, but it sounds so funny and like very him. I'm interested to see how he will kind of reconcile his own creative differences with the Marvel universe. So, I'm I'm so. Did you see that Twitter exchange he had with James Gunn? Yes. Yeah, and he was like, "How many explosions should I have? Because I have one. <laughs> I have one <laughs> explosion." <laughs> And James Gunn was like, two, two explosion. <laughs> yeah, like, it's really good if you blow up, like, a school bus. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, like second question, do I have to have that purple guy in my movie? <laughs> he was great. I follow him on Twitter now because of that exchange. It was so good. So mm-hmm. But yeah, so like that, if you, like, his kind of humor and stuff, like, it's very Flight of the Concords. Okay. Um, and they're all really funny, and I love them, so. I was very excited to see them this week. I should check it out. Um, okay. So, so, what do you really like this week? I really like... Okay, so this is kind of cheating because I... This is my really like for last week. Well, Wait, know, is it going to be Stranger Things again? I'm going to talk about Stranger Things again because I, <laughs> I finished the series and I love it so much. But you know what? I'm just going to do like a half really like because... I love Stranger Things so much and I'm currently making my dad watch it so I can rewatch the show. <laughs> it's really good. It's, I think I pitched it last week as like a perfect marriage of Stephen King and Steven Spielberg, and it is. But it also has like shades of X Files, Twin Peaks, basically everything that you love from the '80s and the '90s, but yeah. in this really good original story. Um, have you seen it, Anya? I have not, but it's on my list. I really want to. Yeah, it's only eight episodes, and... There are so many things. I really want to watch The Night Manager. I have every episode of The Night Manager recorded, and I want to watch that, and it's six episodes. There's so much to watch. There's a lot to watch. I really love Stranger Things a lot, enough that I'm apparently re-watching it. (laughs) That's amazing. I know, I do want to watch it. I've heard nothing but great things. Yeah, the characters are so strong. I think that's, like, one of the best like the strongest aspects of the show honestly is that like each of the characters have like a really great arc even you know the classic 80s school bully he has his own arc too and be warned you will not you will not be able to unsee this after i tell you this but he looks just like jean ralphio from parks and rec down Stop. to his hair it is ridiculous Stop it. it's that's he, me i just but now i'm gonna like see him and i'm gonna want him to talk like jean ralphio Honestly, like, at some points you're just like, is that John Ralphio? I can't tell. But, like, you can't John take Ralph- it seriously, and you're just like, oh, no, John Ralphio, don't. Amazing. And this is the school bully, you said? Yeah, this is the school bully. So when I watch it, I'm going to just look for John Ralphio. Yes. And, you know, he has, like, a romantic fling with the main girl, and you're just like, I, I can't like I you because you're John Ralphio. After, after like, he bullies someone, I just want him to be like, I'm the worst. Honestly, I was singing that every time he came on screen. I was like, the worst. 
Um, anyways, so <laughs> just wanted to plug Stranger Things again because it is great and you guys should all be watching it. I will watch it, yes. All right. And also, my real really like for this week is The Cursed Child. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child was released um, last night. There was midnight premiere parties for it just like in the old days when you go to the book release parties with your friends and your parents would have to wait for you in the car because you couldn't drive yet well you know what I didn't have that as a kid because my parents were like that's a waste of money you can just buy it three months later when it's not in hardcover anymore and also you're too young to stay out that late so I never actually went to any of like those midnight release parties and I was so upset about it and I also I also always got spoiled for the books the twist in the Harry, in the sixth Harry Potter book, um, Half Blood Prince. Uh, you probably, you guys probably all know this by now because you guys, you can spoil it. Come on, yeah. like everyone. When Dumbledore dies, I got spoiled for that, and I was so upset because I didn't go That's to a midnight terrible. release party. Um, anyways, I went to my first Harry Potter midnight release party because I'm an adult now. I can do what I want, and <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was pretty fun. Like. It wasn't an actual party. There was I just basically got there in time for the long line to start moving. But they got us out really quickly. I got my book by 1222. Everyone was dressed in character. They had their Hogwarts robes. I showed off my Deathly Hallows tattoo. Because, by the way, guys, I got a tattoo on my wrist, and it's a Deathly Hallows symbol. Because she's the best. I am the best. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, Anya. Aw, um, thanks. And, uh, yeah, that was, it was, an ex- it was, I found, I'm glad I finally got to experience it, even though, I had to go by myself because all my friends were either out of town or just, like, not available. But it was still fun, and I'm happy I finally got to, like, get that out of my Harry Potter loving system. Yay! So. And now we'll have to see what you actually think of the play. Yes. I just started reading it last night, but then I fell asleep because this week has been exhausting for me. Um, um so. what if, I'm curious, what does it say on the book? Like, because J.K. Rowling didn't no. actually write the script right she used the story it's original story by jk rowling but the book is actually by jack thorne okay okay i just wanted to make sure because i know like i remember she didn't actually write this script because she's been writing fantastic beasts mm-hmm. yeah um no, yeah original story but the script itself is by jack thorne so okay well original story by rowling tiffany um john tiffany and jack thorne mm-hmm. so, um three person team yeah, so now you'll have to let us know. You'll have to update us. Um, yeah. I'll let you know she if it's can, still my yeah, really HT like will, She will give her little review on, like, Twitter or something, maybe. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. See what you think. I will she'll tweet like, through Millennial Falcons Twitter. Yeah, yeah, she'll let us know what she thinks. I, yeah, I'm still in the middle of my reread. I'm on Half-Blood Prince. So I'm like, I feel like I can't read a sequel if I'm in the middle of a reread of the current series, the original series, so. Yeah. It's okay. I'm going to finish that first. I understand. <laughs> All right, so I think that is our episode this week. Okay, um, since Willoughby's not here, so we're going to have to remember all of our social things. Uh, I just realized that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so um, if you guys have any thoughts on period films or Flight of the Concords, Stranger Things, Harry Potter and the First Child, you should definitely come let us know. And HT, do you want to do it this week? Uh, Sure. You can let us know. <laughs> so unsure about our own social channels. Yeah. You can let us know on Twitter, which is at Falcon Podcast, our Facebook, which is the Millennial Falcon, um, and then our WordPress, which is Millennial Falcon Podcast at WordPress.com. Yes. And you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on both iTunes and Google Play. Yes. 
And where can they find you on Twitter, Anya? You can find me at Anya Crittenton. And what about you? You can find me at HTranBooley. All right. Until next time, guys. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye.